0: There are very few future states that you get to from our current state that don't involve a significant green hydrogen push for our society.
1: Hydrogen, the most abundant element on Earth, has been hailed for decades as a beacon of the coming clean energy revolution. So why has it still not arrived? And why is everyone all of a sudden talking about green hydrogen. My name is Nico Johnson, and I'm your host as we navigate the hype, the hope, the reality, and the fiction in this search for truth in green hydrogen. This five-part series presents unique perspectives on how each of us might play a role in the greening of the hydrogen economy, the massive opportunities, and potential pitfalls that come with it. Green Hydrogen is a production of Suncast Media, and Season 1 is brought to you by Intersect Power. In episode one, Sheldon Kimber will talk to the business development opportunity of what Sheldon refers to as the inevitability of the hydrogen economy. Sheldon's got almost 20 years of experience in energy, finance, development, and entrepreneurship. He's currently CEO and founder of Intersect Power, a developer, owner, and operator of Clean Infrastructure. He was previously the COO at Recurrent Energy, a company many of you in the solar industry would recognize, where he led all of the development, origination, operations globally. During seven years at the company, they expanded from small-scale rooftop development to a leading utility-scale platform with more than two gigawatts of projects in operation and eventually sold the business to Canadian Solar. Well, you're tuning in because you are as eager as I to understand in a world Where we are faced with an energy transition and the need for dramatic climate action, we have choices to make. And many of you, as I, have dedicated your careers to the implementation of solar and electric vehicles and energy storage, carbon capture, and yes, the H word, hydrogen. Generally speaking, we are looking at how our electric grid and our approach to generating power, storing it, delivering it. In various forms is enabled through deep decarbonization that affects industry and in fact as today's guest suggests brings about a whole new form of industrial revolution to set the stage i'd like to welcome to the show sheldon kimber ceo of intersect power sheldon good to see you thanks for having me nico sheldon deep decarbonization means a lot of things to a lot of different people i think that in general terms and through the conversations I've had with you it, I get the sense that you're anxious about the way that we talk about decarbonization and broadly speaking it could be said that sometimes we're talking about things that might not even matter. Could you help me understand how you see the world evolving having built some of the largest solar plants in the United States and and where you see the evolution of the of the dialogue the vernacular that we need to adopt as we start to think about how to get to net zero
0: yeah you know it's kind of funny that you put it in those terms just in terms of the you know the vernacular and kind of the language um, because uh intersect power was kind of founded around a couple of core questions uh way back when you know we're sort of th- putting our heads together around 2014 15 16 and one of the things that puzzled me most and was the most interesting question I could come up with was what happens when green electricity is so cheap in certain parts of the country at certain times of day uh, that putting it on the grid doesn't really make a lot of sense. So um, that has really been the genesis of the long-term business plan for Intersect Power. Obviously, we've, we've you know built a pretty significant renewable development platform and we're moving into ownership of renewable assets now. But what's really exciting to us and what motivates me is we like to say we're, we're thinking outside the grid. And it really is all those opportunities beyond the grid for clean electricity to play a, a much larger role in the deep decarbonization of our economy. I think, you know, the things that excite me are in any transition, there are opportunities to take a position, right? I like to argue. <laughs> um, and, 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 I like to think about things, come up with ideas and and you know um, sort of you know take a take a position, make a bet, see if it's right right i think I think that's what drives a lot of people um certainly it's what drives a lot of entrepreneurs and so intersect is is making some of those bets and they're they're pretty audacious, but you know uh, I think at the core of them, we're in a position to say things you know along the lines of our current state if you just really unpack it leads to certain future inevitabilities, right? And we'll talk a little bit more about the the general inevitabilities that that we like to think about here at Intersect. But one of those things is there are very few future states that you get to from our current state that don't involve a significant green hydrogen uh, push for our society. Um, The switch to zero carbon liquid and gaseous fuels. Uh, I think that that's just a really... You know I'm not sure that that's necessarily super controversial. um I think there's a lot of hype, so i I'll, I'll 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 put maybe a slight slightly different spin on it and say that in addition to believing that that is an inevitability of sorts. I think many people are very wrong about where that growth is going to come from, how that transition is going to look, what what the headwinds might be to that transition, what the complexities might be. I think a lot of people are missing the boat on a bunch of that stuff, and you know, my hope is uh, that that you know, intersect can take a different bet and uh, and ultimately lead in this transition.
1: Well, I'll take your uh, I'll take your bet here, and uh, one of the reasons why we've decided to do this uh, series, unpacking the, uh, as we've discussed or described, inevitability of green hydrogen is that there is a lot of skepticism. There's a lot of hype. So I'd love to hear from your perspective, Sheldon, uh, help me set the stage. What have we misunderstood about the scale of the problem and the current solutions? Uh, You often refer to gigaton solutions. And then fundamentally, where do we have a sense of perhaps confusion around the evolution and uh, economic dynamics of hydrogen.
0: With any business planning exercise or, or industry planning exercise, when you're trying to forecast the future, if you will, and I'm not some sort of futurist, so this isn't really what I do for a living, but I do write business plans and set business strategies. So it is to some degree, but you have to start with where you are, right? You have to start with a current a current state of reality. And that current state is pretty obvious. We've got massive loss of life and property already happening fires, hurricanes, extreme winter events, flooding. Climate change is not our future. Climate change is our present. Just in the last 18 months, people have begun to really internalize that fact. In addition to seeing sort of the physical catastrophe of climate change, you're beginning to see the implications on the really complex systems that drive our society, right? Financial markets are adapting. ESG investments, you know, trillions and trillions of dollars pouring into vehicles in the public and private markets that are dedicated to either decarbonization or simply avoiding fossil fuels and carbon production. You see insurance markets beginning to block up and not even function in some cases. My insurance here in California on the wildfire front has gone up to almost three times what it was just in the last couple of years. We're really seeing climate change not only impact our society physically, but beginning to strain the system itself and the system struggling to try and adapt. The good news is that the system is adapting, regardless of sort of government, you know, without government action in some cases. This is the current state of things. And what it really motivates is a future state, right? Because once you understand the current state, there really are only a handful of places you can go from there, right? There are certain things that you can say about the future that have to occur to some degree, right? There are only very small tail cases where some of these things don't occur, right? So when you sit back and say, this climate change is here, it's happening. It's not going to stop at 1.5 degrees. It's not like, oh, you know, we get to 2050 and we missed our targets. And oh, shoot, we just didn't do it, guys. Sorry you know, like, we'll get them next time. No, it goes to two, two and a half, three, three and a half degrees. And all of a sudden, you know, most of the major coastal cities are underwater. And, you know, it it is, you know, a mass extinction event. So we will have to do something about climate change in my lifetime. This is an inevitable, you know, fact, right? So the beauty of this is that predicting future states, when you've got such massive threats, you have to respond to, means that there are certain things you can come to that are are pretty obvious, right? There will have to be a price on carbon. The only solutions that really matter are multi-gigaton solutions. We're past the point where, you know, small, non-scalable, let's say, catching cow farts or whatever it is that we're doing type solutions are going to matter. We're just past that. That's simply it. The value of our commodities is going to begin concentrating in their carbon content. Said another way, our commodities are going to start having a green component or a component of just like electricity has a wreck, right? And value will potentially concentrate not in the thermal energy or the chemical energy or the electron, but actually in the, the 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 component that determines what the environmental and climate impact of that energy commodity is. You know, negative emissions technologies are going to have to happen, right? And I think maybe most importantly, the other takeaway is that. We don't have time to replace every bit of built infrastructure and energy and industrial infrastructure. So retrofit will have to happen. So this is what we call the future state, right? These are the things, the big thematic trends of what must occur simply based on where we are today and the assumption that we're not going to stand by as most of the planet dies in the
1: next hundred years. Sheldon, thanks for setting the table. I'd love it if you could give me a perspective. What does this mean for business, for entrepreneurs like yourself, like myself, who are looking for opportunity and trying to figure out where we fit in this idea of deep decarbonization. You refer to it, I believe, as the nexus of deep decarbonization.
0: I've said that a lot. And and really what it comes down to is sort of how clean power fits into the middle of all of this, right? If you've got a future state in which many of these things are true, prices on carbon, massive scale really being the, the primary driver of what we need in terms of climate solutions, You quickly arrive at a future where high capacity factor, low cost, clean electricity is the enabling feature, the enabling factor, if you will, the enabling input in a host of industries that are going to be trillion-dollar industries of the future that barely exist today. What we mean by that is these are industries where the capex may still be high on, on the actual equipment, say an electrolyzer to make hydrogen. But most of the cost and most of the input cost is clean electricity, right? So, to the degree that you can find high capacity factor clean electricity at a low cost, you can maximize the output of that expensive capex because you've got high capacity factor, right? You wanna make sure you use it as close to 100% of the time as possible if it's expensive. And you can bring in clean electricity at low prices. So, the bulk of its variable cost is coming in at a low per unit cost. Overall, you know. Clean electricity is what kind of tips the balance and makes these 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 industries viable. And then over time, as they scale because the clean electricity is enabled them, the capex comes down, and there's sort of this self-reinforcing cycle, right? A variable cost is low enough that the capex can be high for a while, and then capex you know follows as the industries come down the learning curve. So we see these industries as kind of what we call the five inevitable industries of the future, which are you know green hydrogen and e fuels, direct air capture. The electrification of thermal loads, believe it or not, fully, I think it's about 20% of all carbon emissions come from, you know, I like to say boiling water, because it gives us all a nice impression of, you know, your grandmother making tea, but it's actually, <laughs> actually you know, steam loads for, for industrial and, and, and manufacturing processes. And then, you know, the other two are what we refer to as mass scale EV charging and desalination. We're not going to talk about a lot of those today, I don't think, right? Because we're talking about hydrogen, Nico. But just setting the table, that's how we kind of come to the hydrogen thesis is this move from there is a current state of the world that implies a certain number of things in the future that must happen. And if those things happen, these five industries, you know, will grow to massive scale. And hydrogen is absolutely one of them.
1: Sheldon, I appreciate that you've set the stage and it's in many ways a lens of you into how we can shape our approach to what you've referred to as gigaton solutions through the five inevitable industries that necessarily will direct our efforts towards green hydrogen, e-fuels, direct air capture, electrification of thermal loads, massive scale EV charging and desal, as you eloquently explained to us. I want to make sure that if you're listening to this, you don't get lost in acronyms and industry jargon. There's a term that you use, and, and, and even I sometimes get a little confused by this, so I want to make sure that we drill down on it really quickly. High capacity factor at a low cost. Can you explain for the layperson what capacity, how the capacity factor comes into play here?
0: Sure. So if I have an electrolyzer and it costs $100, right, $100 to buy the electrolyzer, and I'm putting electricity into it 50% of the time. Or actually, let's say it this way. I'm using solar only, right? Just solar. Mm-hmm. So right. during the sunny hours of the day. So I'm putting electricity into it maybe a third of the time, right? Mm-hmm. I'm really only using that CapEx one third of the of, of the time. So I'm, I'm effectively buying three times more CapEx, right? Three times more electrolyzer than I need uh, because I've got all this dormant capacity, right? So when we say capacity factor, it's the number of of hours in the day, if you if you will, that 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 electrolyzer can be run. So as we maybe combine wind with solar with a little bit of batteries to balance, now you can begin running that electrolyzer at sixty five, seventy five, you know, maybe even you know closer to hundred if you bring in grid power. Now you're using expensive capital cost of the electrolyzer more of the time, right? So if you're going to buy an electrolyzer yeah. anyway for a hundred bucks, and you only use it a third of the time, it, it's obviously going to make your end product much more expensive.
1: Gotcha. It's, it's, it's the utilization rate of the equipment that you're purchasing and, and how efficiently you're running that equipment to generate the necessary electrons or other uh, elements that we're trying to, to capture. So Sheldon, as we dig into the principal element of your thesis, hydrogen being a core element of the grid of the future, it'd be helpful to really understand how these markets might unfold based on the need for these gigaton solutions. And I suspect based on your previous posture, there may be a little bit of a contrarian view here.
0: So, yeah, I think there is significant fundamental confusion about what markets will be both profitable and scalable, right? I think many people are lost looking for the most profitable markets, right? Mm -hmm. That's where you find yourself driving down the road of, you know, Light and medium duty transportation competing against you know gasoline uh, because the headroom price there is actually quite attractive right if you convert the dollar per gallon to dollar per kilogram it's a it's a good market from a, a margin perspective but it's very unlikely to be scalable because it's actually quite hard still to transport uh, hydrogen so you know one of the last things to come along will probably be significant hydrogen transportation at scale to the end user right california has already shown how difficult and problematic it can be to invest in hydrogen fueling stations for you know light duty vehicles right it takes decades and you know is a is a is a very thorny sort of transportation and delivery problem so that's a market that has profit but probably not easy scale then there are other markets that appear to have scale but maybe don't like power to gas to power right where where people are sort of saying, well, let's use the hydrogen to balance the grid, right? And so if you're balancing the grid with hydrogen, clearly that seems to imply that you're gonna have an enormous amount of scale. But at the end of the day, that scale is a little bit questionable and the profitability from that scale is certainly questionable. I'll, I'll walk you through why. If you are balancing the grid, the value, if you will, that will be extracted as a, as a, as a business player The party that will make money on that is not necessarily the person producing hydrogen. Balancing the grid is much more of a capacity play in the power markets than it is an energy play. And What I mean by that is, it's much more about having access to hydrogen and a hydrogen-capable gas turbine on hand, ready to be dispatched. You're going to be paid most of your revenue, most of your profit for being ready to be dispatched, rather than actually running those hours off of hydrogen. So from that perspective, the people that will benefit most are people like Calpine that owns a bunch of gas turbines in great locations, right? They'll repower those for hydrogen. And so the, the 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 profit will concentrate in the hands of the existing capacity owners. Right. So as new hydrogen business models go, it's a, a little bit of a false promise of of you know of scalability because one, you're actually not going to burn that gas base load, right? It's going to be just used for peaking, so not that many hours. And two, the profitability, while it looks like it might be workable, most of this will accrue to a handful of small incumbents who will retrofit. So these are the things that people haven't thought through in sort of the second second order uh, developments of these markets. So when you're looking for scalability and profitability, I think there are you know. Many other places you could look. We can talk about uh, going forward if you want, Nico. You know, in terms of what our strategy is. But I think the the fundamental point I want to make here is that many people are again digging in the wrong dirt. One last point on this is that Michael Liebrich from BNEF came out in the latter part of the summer with with something he's calling the hydrogen ladder. You know what that lays out is basically something very similar to what we believe, which is the real uses the real scalable uses and profitable uses of hydrogen are much more likely to be in both the voluntary and compliance markets you know for heavy industrial uses thermal uses places where natural gas really just can't be replaced because you know you've got boilers and gas turbines and and other infrastructure that just aren't going to be replaced quickly and so you're going to need to sub in either what I'll call financially, which we can talk about what I mean by that in a second, or physically, clean gas substitutes, right? And I think if you look at Michael's hydrogen ladder, you'll see that those are really the applications that sit at the top of that. And you'll see very clearly that both that power generation, <laughs> grid balancing and uh, and and vehicles uh, sit really right <laughs> on the bottom rung of his ladder.
1: yeah, it's a it's a fascinating model, and uh, one in which I would encourage, and we'll link to it, of course all the listeners to go and check the article that he wrote back in August, as you suggested. One of the things that we're going to talk a lot about in this in this series is the necessary alliances that are required in our industry and with what we've often referred to as traditional or even fossil fuel, big oil, oil and gas. Seems to me, with regards to these infrastructure requirements, there's already a lot of infrastructure existing in the form of natural gas, things like Gas transmission and pipelines. How do we address the locationality of hydrogen if we are not using it for fueling stations? If we're using it for other power generation applications, I think what a lot of folks are trying to answer for themselves is how does this couple with my solar plant? How do I address this through my own business plan?
0: I think you're absolutely on to the right thing in terms of thinking through how we reuse or retrofit the existing oil and gas transmission system upstream assets refining you know there's this massive compound of existing infrastructure for both industrial and energy uses we're not going to replace that in time you know the the the, the thinking that we will somehow all have a tesla in our garage a solar panel on our roof and you know uh, that's going to that's going to you know a, a power wall in our garage as well and that's going to set it all 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 straight you know, is delusional to the point of you know comedy in 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 many ways. Both with respect to its 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 obliviousness to the the social uh, justice issues around that, and also the technical issues around that. So I think what what we are going to have is very much um, a reuse of a lot of the existing industrial infrastructure. I think it was a former executive from Shell on the upstream side and, and Shell in general and, and others in the oil industry that have been using this term kind of adjacency for talking about mm-hmm. how how and why hydrogen is going to be super important in the energy transition. And I, I like to use the term retrofit sort of loosely in, you know, in conjunction or, mm-hmm. or as a substitute for it, because really, that's what I'm saying when we talk about reusing the infrastructure we have, right? Right pipeline operators are already beginning to realize that they're they're being told by public investors that their assets have a limited useful life of 20 years and that they're basically you know uh, their stock is basically an annuity to a dwindling you know use of, of fossil fuel infrastructure and they're looking around going that's absolutely not true we can find lots of other green things to put in our pipes and hydrogen is the biggest one right so you're seeing already the owners of that infrastructure, Financially and you know economically motivated to make the transition to retrofit, you're seeing companies like Calpine and other gas-fired operators, you know, talking more about how do we retrofit, upgrade our turbines to use hydrogen. It simply is again a pipe dream that we're going to you know totally electrify, that we're going to still have things like plastics, right? <laughs> when when in, a, in an all electric future, right? That's really mm-hmm. where. Hydrogen um, and these concepts of adjacency and retrofit are, for lack of a better term, increasing the inevitability of hydrogen. We have to have liquid and gaseous fuels.
1: Well, Sheldon, tell him we've talked about how, on the surface, folks are really missing the opportunity, and they're they're looking in perhaps incorrect corners and markets. Where do you see the opportunity? Where are the markets that look good? Uh, with regard to this inevitability for the hydrogen economy?
0: That can be answered with really two kind of components. And we refer to this as kind of a barbelled approach, right? We want to find markets that can really scale rapidly, right? And aren't inhibited by a willingness to pay or transportation and delivery issues that are going to impact scalability. So we are really focused on finding those markets where there's the highest revenue demand and the lowest cost supply. And when we say we're taking a barbell approach, we're effectively just identifying the lowest cost supply and a bunch of different markets with a high willingness to pay, and then trying to figure out like what are the what are the ways to connect those markets at the lowest cost, right? Because that really is that delivery component right now is really the the hardest and least scalable, and probably will be the longest to come about. You know, the longest component to fix. So again, how do you find profitable markets, high willingness to pay? lowest cost, and then work backward to from the two ends of the barbell to kind of see if there are connection,
1: easy connections. While I imagine there are a plethora of examples you could give, I'd love to hear if you have a couple that really exemplify this barbell approach.
0: Yeah, definitely. So for instance, one of the markets that we're looking at is to try and create more of a financial delivery mechanism. And for those of you, you who are not necessarily in the commodities business or in the finance and, you know side of the industry i will i will stay away from sort of using the 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 jargon of of you know synthetic delivery and, and those sorts of things and simply say that what we're looking to do is create a green instrument a green hydrogen wreck right that we can put our hydrogen in, blend our hydrogen into potentially existing gas pipelines or put it into use near the point of Of uh, creation, right? So we can sell the MMBTUs, the energy content of our hydrogen, just like natural gas, near the location of, of production, of cheap production, let's say the places that have the best wind and solar, essentially carve off the green attributes into this green hydrogen wreck, right? Just like we do electricity. We then can sell those on to the people that are, have the highest willingness to pay, right? Folks that are, let's say, in consumer packaged goods, right? uh, That use a lot of gas, natural gas, to do things like food drying, food processing, those sorts of things, right? Those folks, when they report on their earnings, for instance, and on their ESG profile, they have a lot of scope one emissions. And scope one emissions are really hard to abate in most cases, right? Particularly because a lot of them come from burning gas. (laughs) Uh, And so- You know, what we are able to do then is find those players that work in those consumer markets where being able to say to end users and customers that our product has less of a carbon impact has a lot of value, right? They can extract value from that in their marketing and in their, you know, top-line revenue. Therefore, they can pass that through. They're a good buyer of that that attribute. So while we may be selling our, our thermal energy in, you know, the middle of the country with our wind and solar plant to, you know... Either just mixing it into a pipeline or selling it to a, a, a pretty low priced commodity user of, you know, gas, thermal, thermal energy, that wouldn't necessarily pay a lot for the greenness of the hydrogen. We can carve that off and sell it separately to a buyer that has a higher willingness to pay because they can extract a higher value from it from their end customer. So this is just one example of how we're thinking creatively about identifying the high revenue high willingness to pay markets, committing to the cheapest sources of hydrogen in the country, and then finding either physical or financial ways of linking those buyers and sellers so that we can put together, you know, scalable business models, really, and and near-term scalable business models.
1: It's creative. And it's also a little bit of idea sex on how we built the solar industry and the wind industry before it, right? It's long been held that from CFLs to solar electrons, we can decouple that environmental attribute in the form of RECs while delivering a fungible asset in the form of electrons. You are suggesting no matter the distance from the buyer, we can inject these green hydrogen electrons into the pipeline and sell off those RECs separately. That's a, that's a clever idea. I haven't heard anyone suggest that for the hydrogen economy. And w- now that you've said it, it seems obvious Uh, I think that's to your point of folks kind of looking in maybe the wrong direction for how to solve these problems.
0: You know, the other market that is that is interesting to us is just the the pure sort of over the fence supply agreement. Right. Finding those large industrial users of not necessarily Mm -hmm. even natural gas, but hydrogen. Right. Actual users Mm -hmm. of of hydrogen where you can you're not going in against pure thermal MMBTUs in the form of natural gas you know you're going yep. in against hydrogen that they were otherwise making from fossil fuels for you know a buck fi- a buck or a buck 50 with carbon sequestration and you're able to sell it to them with you know the 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 the, the what what we should hopefully get in a green in a green hydrogen ITC maybe in the infrastructure bill mm-hmm. but you're you're able to make it for 253 dollars an dollars uh, a kilogram and you can go in and for a relatively modest premium offer them green hydrogen you know so Finding those Mm -hmm. facilities, finding those large industrial users and being able to co-site right next to them uh, is sort of the other market.
1: Well, I don't want to give too much away, but we will get into greater detail exactly what those industrial users look like, the business case for one versus another. But you did mention the Reconciliation Act. I'd love to hear your thoughts around the policy front and how we can now leverage policy to help and and where we have a deficit.
0: What's interesting is the Reconciliation Act or the Reconciliation Bill has in it a hydrogen production tax credit, which starts out very rich, which it needs to, to really pull through the the early electrolyzer production. But Mm -hmm. just like solar and wind... As we get electrolyzers to scale, they will come down the the, the learning curve. I, I think that's very clear from most of the industry reports that are out there, and from the number of new electrolyzer companies or electrolyzer companies that are, already exist scaling up production. So that production tax credit is first and foremost the enabling feature. Right, it's going to go for. Uh, I think the last I read was you know it's going to sunset in twenty six, but that that three year period with a, a fairly rich front end ramping down. To a, a more modest price point, and then falling off, is a key enabling policy that will sort of turn on the electrolyzer industry, get it far enough down the, the 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 learning curve that things begin to make economic sense across broader a broader swath of the market. The other parts of policy that need to be thought through are actually
1: kind of easier, to be honest. Well, let me interrupt you for just a quick second, Sheldon. You say that it, you suggest that it's easy, and while I don't disagree, I'm actually just ignorant. How would it be easier for passing legislation than we might? It might seem readily apparent.
0: Well, just to be clear, I said it was easier, not easy. So what I mean by <laughs> that is it—you know—to use the uh, the somewhat trite phrase—it doesn't take an act of Congress, right? Um, so, so, <laughs> so, literally. so it literally does not take an act of Congress in some cases for. FERC or FIMSA or some of these other agency-level folks to ease the, the the pipeline access constraints or the blending constraints for existing pipes, FIMSA to set safety guidelines, FERC to address grid charging tariffs, if you will, similar to what they've done for batteries, right, where electrolyzers can access the wholesale price of power on the electric grid. So this is what I mean by it's easier, is it can largely be done, much of it can be done at the agency level.
1: Well, we'll certainly dig into... The relative ease or complication with which policy can affect the change that we want to see in the market uh, in uh, an upcoming episode. And I will look forward to your commentary after that episode is over as well. Sheldon, when you think about the relative scale of investment required, we talked a bit about this in uh, a previous interview that you and I had earlier in the year. For those who are relatively unfamiliar, can you perhaps put it within the context of what we've currently thought about in the investment requirements for? creating a solar economy. What's the scale of the investment we're looking at?
0: The scale of the investment we're looking at is obscene. (laughs) Uh, I don't know know quite how else to say it. It is on par with the types of investments that were made in the early days of oil exploration and, and discovery, right? It's on par with the types of investments that were made into the nuclear industry over several decades, and probably well beyond that, to be quite honest. We are doing nothing less than rebuilding uh, the entire energy infrastructure, both electrons and now with the crossover using hydrogen from the electron side to the molecule side, really a large portion of the liquid and gaseous fuel side of the business as well, right? And just so folks are clear, the liquid and gaseous fuel side is actually a much larger opportunity than on the electric side. So, you know, I'm not sure most folks, even in the energy industry, understand the scale of the liquid and gaseous mm-hmm. fuel side of the business. I believe that in in markets that have heating load, for instance, uh, in the United States, the average household consumes two thirds of its energy, its total energy in the form of liquid you know gaseous fuels not even not even including their transportation that they that they buy right. in, in gasoline right So just relative to kind of gas versus power on the utility side, mm-hmm. it's almost two-thirds gas relative to power in most cases. So you're wow. talking about you know scalability that, that the renewables business has not really even begun to fathom. Uh, So, Mm you know, this is very, very clearly will run well into the trillions of dollars of
1: investment. Sheldon, I am personally looking forward to all the things that we get to learn in putting this series together. Your team has done a tremendous job in coming up the education curve. I have to imagine that a number of your own personal philosophies, beliefs, expectations, anticipations have been in some way challenged. So as we wrap this first episode, I'd love to hear what's something that you've changed your mind about recently, and how do you think it's going to challenge the rest of our brethren in the broader renewables sector?
0: The first thing that I've changed my mind on is the likelihood of a societal consensus around the need for action for climate. And what I mean by that is I've seen the current state of things evolve into sort of a near catastrophe, if you will, with extreme weather events, the ripples of climate change coming through the financial markets, all of the stuff we talked about at the top, I'm actually beginning to be more optimistic, to be quite honest, that we will see societal you know, change. I am probably more pessimistic that we'll see it from our governments, but I actually see almost a voluntary price on carbon coming from just the sheer percentage of the economy that has made net zero uh, commitments for 2050 and you know the, the ripples through the financial markets of, of large activist ESG investors. So I am quite bullish on that. And that is something, the, the way in which I thought that action would come about is certainly something I've changed my mind on in the last 18, 24 months. So that obviously doesn't answer specifically your question around hydrogen. Uh, but so more to the point maybe on things that have cropped up and changed my mind since we started looking at the hydrogen opportunity I think the fundamental one is the changes in the renewable energy markets and the assumption that renewable energy would simply continue to decline in cost you know to to the point where it was quote unquote too cheap to meter and this would enable us to make hydrogen and e-fuels for next to nothing and 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 so forth and so on i I think that we we will still see renewable energy at a price point that makes sense for all of these inevitabilities, but we can no longer assume that it will just simply keep going down at the same rate and eventually achieve these very low levels. I think there are a handful of of things that have contributed to this misconception. The first of which is that the structure, the financial structure of uh, how we have bought renewables has been sort of perverse. As we've gotten into 15, 20-year co- contracts, shorter and shorter contracts for the PPA, people have begun to equate PPA price with kind of the you know levelized cost of energy for renewables.
1: Yeah, the delivered price. Yeah, <laughs> that
0: is not actually true. In fact, many people are underbidding the PPA price for the first 15 years so that they can attract financing and in fact, making very aggressive pricing assumptions on the back end, which are unlikely to come true. So you, you know I've talked about that a lot in, in, in other places publicly, but I think that is really influencing the public perception around what the levelized cost and the, the true long-term nature of you know the price of renewable energy is, which is probably more in the mid-20s to you know, mid-30s, depending on how much battery capacity you want, things like that. So I think that's one thing that has very much perverted the cost. I think the other thing is just an, a, a dramatic reliance on a Chinese supply chain. Right? And I think that is coming to an end uh, pretty clearly as the United States government realizes that the major beneficiaries of the tax credits have been the large energy takers that care about climate, Facebook and Googles and all of those folks, and the Chinese manufacturers of a lot of uh, input products for renewable facilities. So I think across the board, we are entering a new era of the renewable energy industry.
1: Sheldon, it's it's compelling to me. The idea that through fast commitments throughout our economy, there are already potential for voluntary price on carbon, uh, regardless of regulatory uh, enforcement. Uh, The idea that renewables won't always be declining in cost uh, and this woeful misunderstanding of the actual delivered embodied price of the renewable electron. I feel like we could do an entire episode just on really digging into what all three of those uh, mean That notwithstanding, I have a few more things I want to probe with you. The first is uh, I admire deeply your and your organization's ability to look into the future, think about, I mean, all the way back to, you know, the previous businesses that you've created, think about where the market is going and position yourself well. So within the construct of these inevitable markets that we've outlined in uh, the conversation and in particular around hydrogen, how have you structured your own thinking and your team's thinking to get smart quickly? Where do you go for information? How and where can others best get up to speed on this conversation?
0: First and foremost, Nico, that's what this series is about. so uh, I hope I hope that's that the listeners come here first. Yeah. but more seriously, I, I guess from 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 our side because because uh, obviously, I'm the one I'm the one on this series, so I, I don't I don't I don't go back and listen to my own words. The place that we go for for information is really more kind of a primary source, if you will, right? We are lucky enough as people who put a lot of infrastructure and steel in the ground to have the ear of a lot of technology companies and customers and others in the hydrogen space. And so we are constantly to use sort of the lean startup terminology getting out of the office, right? We 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 are out there talking to people about what they would pay to mitigate their scope one emissions and buy green hydrogen recs. We are out there talking to electrolyzer companies. We just signed an MOU with a startup electrolyzer company that is making incredible progress on the PEM side. We're talking to other technologies in hydrogen right now that you'll you'll see more from us later trying to diversify our technology bets and, and and make sure that we have access to, to enough supply to make our pipeline a reality. So really that's, that's where we're at. I, I just take an enormous number of calls and, and discussions with, again, kind of primary sources, if you will. So hopefully what I'm packaging up here uh, in terms of, you know, answering some of your questions and some of the speaking and writing and things that I'm doing can sort of pass on to others, uh, a lot of the insights we're gleaning from those conversations. Well,
1: the Suncast audience and many others are grateful for your ability to pay it forward and to peer inside the mind and the pattern matching that you've been able to achieve over the last number of years, as you've thought really critically about the hydrogen economy. I, on that note, want to wrap with a pensive question. Growth is not without sacrifice our ability to scale, we have to make decisions for where money is channeled, what gets built and what doesn't get built, whose dreams are realized and whose are shattered. What sacrifices do you see we're going to have to make in order to achieve the hydrogen economy that you envision as possible?
0: Well, make no mistake, we're going to have to make a lot of sacrifices. And I think we as environmentalists and people who generally got into this to save the environment are going to, have to Sacrifice a lot of sacred cows, for lack of a better term. This is going to be a green industrial revolution, nothing short of it. We're going to rebuild the world's industrial and energy infrastructure. And when I say a green industrial revolution, it's not honestly going to be emphasis on the green, it's going to be emphasis on the industrial and it's going to be emphasis on the low carbon. So there are inevitable conflicts between the low carbon element of a green revolution and some of the other green priorities that we that we value, right? So you're going to see industrial facilities. These do not look like, these look like factories. They look like refineries. They look like industrial facilities, right? So that that is something that we have come to associate with environmental degradation and dirty industries. We will need to further associate them with the hope that is deep decarbonization and saving our climate and economy from, from ruin. I think there will need to be sacrifices and compromises made on land use. Certainly, the government is beginning to broker significant land use discussions, and, and they've done a good job already with you know, pre-permitting and pre-designating sites on public lands for renewables. There will be need to be increasing dialogue between the renewable, the renewable industry and the hydrogen industries and environmental NGOs. We have a great relationship with folks on the NGO side. We are about to do a project that will probably be one of the most heavily mitigated projects, setting aside more land and conservation than probably any other project that may have ever been done, uh, certainly in California. So those sorts of compromises and discussions will have to take place. So I think, again, this will be a negotiation ultimately between the various portions of the environmental movement to try to find a way to address climate change rapidly while, you know, continuing to value and prioritize other elements of our environmental platform. I I also just want to state that, you know, we're, we're completely bought in on a just transition, right? A just transition to clean energy to green hydrogen to all of these new industries, these these inevitable industries. And I think that hydrogen isn't a great example of something of, of what I mean by what we can achieve in terms of a just transition. And that is, it is a industry that can provide jobs that are consistent with the existing industries and in many cases, piggyback on them, right? So we have a moral obligation to make sure that the folks who already have jobs and livelihoods based in existing energy and industrial industries can continue to make a living, can continue to prosper. And nothing that we're trying to do here will go anywhere if we can't make that clear. If we aren't creating good union jobs and good prevailing wage jobs and providing people with benefits that they can support their families, that's what this industry really needs to focus in on. Of all the things we can sacrifice, that's the one thing we cannot.
1: Sheldon Kimber is the CEO of Intersect Power. You've been listening to the first of a multi-part series on the hydrogen economy and how you and the renewable energy sector can benefit from and understand it to leverage it towards our ultimate goal, which is massive climate action. I hope you've enjoyed this episode. It's part of a five-part series exploring the green hydrogen economy. From the perspective of renewable development technical expertise financial analysis and commercial opportunity i hope that you'll subscribe to the show on spotify and check us out also over on the web at mysuncast.com forward slash hydrogen where you can read more about each guest find additional background information and references that we discussed in this episode if you're totally unfamiliar With me, well, I've interviewed more than 400 founders, leaders, entrepreneurs, and entrepreneurs in the clean energy industry over the last six years through my Suncast podcast, all in an effort to help you figure out exactly where you fit in the clean energy transition. If you haven't yet, I'd really encourage you to go listen to Suncast. It's the most comprehensive podcast in existence, documenting the rise of the solar and clean energy revolution from the voices of the leaders brave enough to stand on the front lines. This Green Hydrogen podcast is a production of Suncast Media and season one is brought to you by Intersect Power. Thank you for listening.